Over the years, the field of UFO research has seen its fair share of dips and curves, ebbs and flows, from all-out ridicule and dismissal to the inevitability of eventual disclosure. The doors of the ET and UFO phenomenon are poised to be blown wide open. One individual who has seen and been integral to it all is international UFO researcher, author, and publisher Philip Mantle. For nearly 40 years, Philip has probed virtually every aspect of this elusive but revelatory subject. A former director of investigations for the British UFO Research Association and former MUFON representative for England, Philip has acknowledged that there has been a great shift in how the UFO subject is both viewed as well as experienced. Today we're discussing a most intriguing account that he has long researched and eventually went on to publish, and that's the fascinating ET abduction story of Calvin Parker, which took place in Pascagoula, Mississippi in 1973. Philip had a lot to say about this incredible account and the UFO phenomenon overall. Let's listen in to what he had to share. Philip, you've been knocking on the door of this field we call ufology for nearly 40 years, 1979. So I think it's fair to say you are truly a pioneer in this work. So first of all, I want to say kudos for all you've added to this broad and complex subject. And thank you for joining us today on Higher Journeys. Oh, it's my pleasure, Alexis. Yeah, I've been involved for nearly 40 years. Makes me sound like I'm really old, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I think you got another long run to go. So, <laughs> And based on the conversation that we just had a moment ago, you've got a lot more to do and a lot more is going on. So we're happy, to, happy that you're a part of this field. Well, listen, I want to start out by asking you, in those 40 years, have you seen any significant shift in the approach to understanding this mystery we call the ET UFO phenomenon? In other words, have you have the entry points changed or expanded in your estimation at all? I, th I think there's a number of things happened. I mean, I think now in, in, in general terms, um, the mass media uh, do tend to take it a lot more seriously uh, than they used to do. Uh, yes, there are still, you know, the usual channels that will, will poke fun at it and, and so on. Um, but I think down the years, because people like um, the late Dr. John Mack became, mm. you know, a Harvard professor, um, then from the UK, we had Nick Pope, you know, the man yes. from the Ministry of Defence. So when people like that become involved, um, it does tend to make people think twice when originally they might have dismissed it out of hand. Mm hmm because these are serious people doing serious work. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, Mac, for example, as well, was a Pulitzer Prize winner, not for writing about this subject, but for, for other things he was involved in. And, of course, every now and again, um, the media does take it seriously, uh, which, do, again, influences public opinion. And we saw that at the end of last year in the sure New York did. Times. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> and I, I believe it was there... Uh, with their online version, it was their biggest read article ever. Really? I I'm believe so. Huh. You know, online. I'm not talking about, you know, the, the paper version. I'm talking about the, the, the hits that it actually received online. I think I'm, I'm right in saying it had more hits than, than anything they'd ever published before. So, of course, that influences public opinion as well. And um, 
So, you know, things have changed. As, as we know, Alexis, when I was involved, there was no, to start with, there was no uh, internet. So the internet has its, its good and bad points. Um, one of the things there used to be in the UK was a lot of um, regional research groups. Most of them have gone. However, then you have this, this great big thing called the internet. So mm. it swings and roundabouts, really. So the, the, I think there certainly has been a, a, a change and a shift. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and long may, may, that, may that continue. I hope so. Well, of course, most of us, <clears throat> if not all of us listening to this program, will undoubtedly know about the uh, the uh, president setting, I, I, I guess we could say, article in the New York Times, as well as the Washington Post. I believe it was December 16th of last year. And, you know, there have been some critics about uh, the impact that it had on mass consciousness uh, or the lack thereof. But either way, I do I would call that um, a demarcation point. And I think there have been several historically and i think more are coming not the least of which is the work that you're doing so that's, well, I, that's... I i definitely think there's more coming from a, a wide variety of places i mean mm -hmm. we've seen um how much credence you put on them but we've seen uh, national governments uh, in many different parts of the world um make available their ufo files mm -hmm. uh, you know we, we've done that here in the uk uh, and there's other uh, countries around the world have done the same and I'm, I'm sure there'll be more to follow and i'm sure there'll be more to follow from those that were involved in in the, in the items we discussed from the new york times uh, in fact I've, I've kept tabs on it and they've given a whole host of hints that you know what we've seen so far is not even the tip of the iceberg i agree yeah you know so hmm. i think next year yeah you know stay tuned there's another bombshell coming, you think? I think there's something coming, but I, I don't know what. I don't have any inside information. I've just tried to follow little little things that the, the gentleman, uh, Mr. Elizondo, has, mm -hmm. has said in public. And, it, and he's given lots of hints that, um, you know, that they are serious uh, and what they say they can support and they can back up. And, and next year we're going to see a lot more. So here mm -hmm. we go. Well, of course, we're talking about to the Stars Academy, and Lord knows there has been, they have received a fair amount of criticism as well as commendation, I suppose. It's all over the map. For whatever it's worth, I do think it's gotten the, the discourse to broaden a bit. So I, I'll be very interested to see w what's happening there. We could obviously do a full show on that, but uh, we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit. Thank you for that. That was that was great. And I'm, I'm sure we'll all be anxiously awaiting uh, to see what might be hitting next. I agree with you, though. I think we've got some some new uh, epiphanies or revelations that may be happening. But let me ask you, Philip, have you changed your approach with investigating all this? I mean, we're talking about four decades. How, how have you, if you have, changed your or broadened your approach to investigating this field? Yeah, I don't think I've changed my approach that much. I mean, again, you know, when I first began, I had this, you know, burning desire to find out uh, what what this phenomena was for myself, you know, for my own personal interest. Um, I was always the type of person and still am that if, you know, you, you see a button that says don't press, I want to know <laughs> what happened when you did press it, you know. And, and the same with the UFO. For, I mean, I was always interested in all things that we label as paranormal, mm. as, as far back as I can remember. Uh, and I, I believe that may stem from my late mother. My mum my was from Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. uh, and when she was young, they, they lived in a, um, a very rural setting. 
and she told me quite openly that she met a fairy hmm. you know and and you know and talked to it and and I, I asked her down the years was this real mom she said well it, it seemed real to me and she told my children this this you know her grandchildren the same story so I always had a fascination for things of that nature but of course when I began um, in, in the late 1970s um, there was no internet so how did you obtain information about this there wasn't a lot of books there were some there was your regional groups and I, I joined one quite fortunately called the Yorkshire UFO Society that's the county I'm from is Yorkshire mm-hmm. and um, it was organized by two brothers uh, Graham and Mark Birdsell uh, Graham went on to publish um, UFO magazine uh, which was extremely successful sadly he died rather suddenly a number of years back but we were we were fortunate in those days, Alexis, because uh, about an hour's drive from where we live, we have what's called the Yorkshire Dales National Park. Beautiful moorlands. Everybody in Yorkshire will tell you about it. But we didn't. We weren't interested in it because it, of its beauty. We were interested because, for whatever reason, uh, it was a hotbed of UFO sightings, and and we were the regional group there at the time, and most of them used to come to us. And we literally had everything. So we did the, the usual things like sky watches and so on. Rather naively, perhaps mm. we thought we could confront this phenomena face to face, you know, up close and personal. But, and we certainly tried to do that. Uh, I, I believe I witnessed the phenomena one night on the moors um, in, in the company of, of Graham, Graham Birdsell. Um so and, and then of course the next thing was to try and uh, interview the witnesses to these events which we did and, and we did all kinds of, of, of um, uh, publicity to bring uh, events in from all around the area and what, what we learned from that Alexis was the fact that yes there was a spike in activity but um, we got reports going back down the decades and we also found that in these areas the people call them all different kinds of things window areas or you know anomalous zones or mm-hmm. ports or whatever but whatever you want to call them i mean the yorkshire dales national park by american standards is not huge you know right but, but in this small area we had reports of everything i'll give you a little example mark mark birdsell and i we, we'd received a letter from a gentleman who lived in a small village uh, in the park so we, we, we phoned him up made a, an appointment to go and interview him and when we got there what we'd call a village was just a number of houses the houses didn't have any numbers on them so how did we find him so we just said i oh, will knock on the door and well somebody will know <laughs> who this gentleman is mm-hmm. so a lady came to the door and i said we're looking for mr so-and-so and she said oh, have you come about the ghost dog What's the ghost dog? And of course, there was the legend of these two red lights that floated through the village. And of course, that was the eyes of the ghost dog, you know. But in reality, all this saw was these strange lights. We found out that witchcraft was still practiced in the area and a whole host of other things just by chance. So these areas don't just have UFO sightings. They had it a bit of everything you could think of. Sure. Yeah. You know, so, you know, things have changed down the years, of course, but I still think um, there's there's nothing better than than interviewing people face to face. 
But the Internet is a great resource because you can access things here, there and everywhere. Right. But it's not it's not the be all and end all as some people believe it to be. Right. So so things have changed in that respect. And of course, the phenomenon itself has changed, Alexis. If, if we look at back to the 1940s, the very simple sightings, you know, uh, and then in the 50s, we had the Space Brothers. You know, and I often ask, where have the Space Brothers gone? <laughs> you know, and then in the 60s, we had the first uh, abduction with, with the Hills, or the first one that went on the record anyway. That We know the ones pre- preceded that. Uh, so nowadays, you know, if you think about the, the Hill encounter, Betty and Barney Hill, yes. do, we, do, do we get that kind of thing now? I think it's, it's the phenomenon as... I'll use this word, I don't know if it's the right word, but it's certainly evolved. It's certainly changed down the decades. Right. Um, and, and why that is, I don't know. Well, you know, you're bringing up something really interesting that uh, what comes to mind is a conversation I just recently had with Nick Redfern, another mutual colleague, not on the UFO phenomenon per se, but rather on uh, other um, sort of non-human intelligence invasion and their, their connection to us. We were speaking particularly about the shadow being phenomenon. And where we ended up going, Philip, is talking about this, uh, the idea that the evolution, we, we brought this up as well, the evolution of the, the quality of the sightings and the, uh, the, different, the different variables to these encounters may have something to do with the evolution of human consciousness as well. In other words, I, as I put it to him, do we have skin in the game? Is there some inextricable link between the phenomena that we're experiencing in ourselves. So it would seem to me, and I, we can't say this for sure, but I agree with you. It seems that over the years, the uh, the elements of the contact experience on a broader scale have changed. They have evolved. There have become more variations of them. What does that have to do with the big C word, consciousness, something that I'm sure 40 years ago, you and your <laughs> colleagues probably weren't talking a lot about about I don't know but I think it's... we talked about it but not in this field right we talked about well, consciousness yeah. in its own right mm-hmm. um, and I think more consciousness would come into the field in those days perhaps when we looked at out-of-body experiences and things of that nature mm-hmm. um, because there was and probably still is this um, idea that ufos are there you put them in their hole the paranormal is there that goes in another pigeonhole and Mm. you you know the cryptids that goes in another department so even uh, we were talking before we started recording of of our our late colleague bud hopkins Mm -hmm. um you know bud um I think he was it was in the mufon journal i think he wrote an article called stewpot thinking or something along those lines. In other words, you know, we there was a, an attempt to say that this these these phenomenon were all linked. There were different sides of the same coin, perhaps. Whereas Bud was not having any of that. You know, he still wanted them put in their different pigeonholes. Interesting. So I think I think that's changed uh, radically down the years when we're, we're looking at the links between this and, as you mentioned, consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I remember, I know we're digressing somewhat, but I remember uh, reading one uh, story about um, an out-of-body experience. A gentleman, you know, was seriously ill. He was in his own room in the hospital, 
and and he died but what he didn't know is that at the time his wife was sat outside in the corridor waiting to see him and of course the the medical crew were working to save him and they, they did revive him mm. um, but she didn't get to see him uh, he, he was too ill and she'd actually bought a new hat for the occasion so when she came in the next day she wasn't wearing this hat but he was aware of it because he'd gone up to the ceiling and he could see out through the window and look down on her and could see her new hat which was amazing you know so we, we, we did sort of look at consciousness but not perhaps in, in the ufo realm right. but you know that's not the case nowadays of course no i think that's changing and i think i do i would dare say it is the elephant that's always been in the room you've got people like grant cameron that are now resigned to to speaking uh integrally or speaking uh, of consciousness in an integral fashion uh and others and and some of the great work he's done he's been able to dig up others that are uh have been notoriously linked to the field i don't know i don't want to speak out of school but individuals that have been sort of on the um covert side of the field in terms of the government cover-up that have in private conversations uh admitted that you know the esp aspect is integral to the contact phenomenon to the ufo phenomenon at large so i don't i don't want to dig a hole i can't get out of here but it is interesting and and, and certainly worthy of a conversation in and of itself but you know i want to go ahead as i'm looking at the time and segue into equally intriguing territory here i want to talk about um and really focus our discussion at this point on your latest work uh, and i'm smiling because it's just doing so incredibly well published under your flying disc press publishing company this is the recently released book about the abduction account of calvin parker and the book is called pascagoula the closest closest encounter my story calvin parker so uh, and i'll add that you also wrote the forward to this this amazing book this is a fascinating account uh guys i'm talking to the audience now fascinating of a man and his friend sort of mentor named charles who in 1973 on a fishing trip in pascagoula mississippi were both abducted they were taken aboard craft and returned returned completely altered now at first blush you might think as far as abduction stories are concerned there's nothing vastly different about this particular account but you found yourself having a great interest in retelling this story philip why do you why did you decide to take this on if you're enjoying this episode and want to get more conversations about all things intriguing, inspiring, and unusual, be sure to subscribe to Higher Journeys on YouTube. And once you do, don't forget to hit that notification bell to receive an announcement as soon as a new episode is posted. And now, back to our show. Well, I mean, you know, I remember reading about the, 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 the Pascagoula case in a, in a magazine article many, many years back. And it just seemed so different to anything else. Okay. Uh, and we start with the fact that there was two people. That, that, at that time was rare. There was Betty and Barney Hill, but most encounters were of one person. And they were in an out-of-the-way location. Now, on the Pascagoula River, where uh, Calvin Parker and Charles Hickson was, it's right next to Highway 90. You can see the bridge going, going over the river. It's not an out-of-the-way place. You can literally just walk right up to it. Mm-hmm. So there was cars passing. In fact, as they were driving into park, they passed another car that was already parked there. You know? So 
it, it wasn't an out-of-the-way place. There were two people involved. Then you get a look at the, the creatures they encountered. Yes, they were humanoid, but they were the most bizarre-looking things you'd ever seen at the time. They were literally like something out of, I don't know if you watch it in the in the US, Doctor Who, mm. you know? Mm. And they were didn't have any eyes or nose or mouth. They had pointed carrot-shaped things sticking out the side of their head and one out the front of the face. Their hands didn't have fingers. They were uh, uh, described as having mittens or looking like crab-like claws. Their legs stayed together. They didn't walk. And their skin was looked like uh, elephant skin, you know, gray and wrinkly. Mm. And they didn't walk. They literally floated over the ground. If that wasn't curious enough, after all this had happened, what did these two gentlemen do? Well, first of all, they formed the Air Force base that they knew was nearby. Uh, Charles Hickson had been a, a veteran of the Korean War. So they formed Keesler Air Force Base. And they said, sorry, we don't investigate UFOs anymore. This was 1973. Project Blue Book had, f had finished in 69. Mm -hmm. Keesler advised them to phone their local sheriff. So they did. Now, the sheriff department said, stay there. We will come out and we will escort you in. So one of the first things that the, the, sh the deputy did when he got there, he gave them both a, what, what I think what you call in America is a sobriety test. Hmm. You know, can you walk straight? Can you put your finger on your nose? I don't know what you do, but, but that was the first thing they did. And of course, they, there was nothing wrong. So they escorted them back to the sheriff's department. And both men were interviewed separately. And, and the police, you know, didn't believe a word. So what they decided to do was put both uh, Charles, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker in a room together uh, and left them alone. And there was a desk there. And about five, ten minutes later, the deputy came back and he took something out of the desk drawer. They didn't know what it was. But unbeknown to them, they'd been secretly recorded. What he was taking out of the drawer was a, a cassette tape. Huh. They went and played that. And, of course, on the cassette tape, they're still talking about what had happened to them and how they were going to tell their family. And, you know, Calvin is almost on the verge of, 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 of a breakdown. He was that scared. Wow. Um, so that was unheard of. So it, the case itself had all these unique um, points to it. Then somebody, we've still never found out who, released this to the press. And, and they were literally bombarded by the media the very next day. I mean, literally, because what did they do the next day? They went back to work. Mm -hmm. So they worked at the local shipyard and the press descended on it. Within 36 hours, the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek was there on site. Wow, I didn't know he'd that. Yeah, he'd flown down using his own money. He met up with Dr. James Harder, who was part of the group called APRO at the time. And um, he um, had to try to hypnotize Calvin, couldn't do that. He, he hypnotized Charles uh, Hickson slightly. And before before Heineck flew back home to uh, Illinois, he held a press conference saying that these two gentlemen were, were the real thing. Whatever the real thing is was still up to speculation, but he asked, he asked everyone to give them a fair hearing. And... Um, you know, down the decades, it, it actually became Hynek's favorite case. Really? Uh, yeah. And, and I even recently, I, I, I communicated uh, with Hynek's son via email. Mm -hmm. 
And he's told me quite openly, he said, I remember, he said, I probably I was around about 10 years old and the phone rang and on the on my father's phone was, was not Calvin Parker, but Charles Hickson wanting to speak to my dad, hmm. you know, on his, on his private home telephone number. They were, they were that close. So it was unique in a number of ways. I mean, three weeks after the event, Calvin Parker did end up having a breakdown. He did. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And, and what Calvin, both gentlemen affected very very differently uh calvin kind of became a drifter didn't want to talk about it and when right. people found out who he was he would he would finish his job and move on you know but charles Hickson was the opposite he thought this was something special something unique um and that we mankind should know about it so he went on the dick cavett show he went and lectured at church halls and UFO conventions. And then, so what happened is last, is last year I got the permission to publish Charles Hickson's book, which was called UFO Contact at Pascagoula. And it was co-authored by a chap called William Mendes. So while I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, I wonder what Calvin makes of this. I know Charles Hickson had, had passed away, but I, I, I knew, I didn't know. I was led to believe that Calvin was still alive. So I started to try and track him down to just to get an, an interview, nothing more. And it, it took me about three months and I, I eventually got an email for him. And lo and behold, it was still active and he replied. Hmm. And um, eventually he gave me his phone number and he was a bit reticent when I first contacted him on the phone. Um, but he said, you know, Philip, he said, I've, I've been thinking about writing my own book. And he'd written some notes just to give him some ideas and, after a few phone calls and a chat on Skype, he said he looks like you, you know, you're the right person at the right time. And, and, and we set about writing his book. Uh, but Calvin was insistent right from day one that he wanted to write this book in his own words. Mm -hmm. um, he wasn't prepared to let me edit things out. He says, I'm, a, I'm an uneducated redneck. I don't mean that in any in any. Any, 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 any way, it's just how he describes himself, mm -hmm. you know, and he said, I want the book to reflect not just what happened to us, but me as a person as well. And um, so, you know, we finished the book uh, and we and we published it. It went on to become a, a bestseller on Amazon. Um, you know, the media again became interested. And now Calvin now wanted to tell his story. He wanted to set the record straight because he hadn't really told the full story. Um, he'd done a number of things that he perhaps shouldn't have done. When, uh, for example, once when a journalist caught up with him, Calvin thought it was a good idea to give him a, uh, you know, a story, and told him that it was all the devil, but he just told him that to get rid of him. You know, <laughs> <laughs> He realised it was a mistake because he was quoted as being said, oh, you believe it was the devil? No, he doesn't. He just tried that to get rid of this fellow. Oh. So, but so so now he wanted to set the record straight, and one of the things we found out is that in 1993, down in Florida, Calvin had actually been uh, uh, went under regressive hypnosis with the late Bud Hopkins. Hopkins I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah. let's get and into that. Yeah, that's great. Well, it was it was a friend of Calvin's who was interested in the subject, uh, and Calvin was living in Florida at the time. And there was a, a UFO convention, and, and it was his friend, so why don't we go and have a chat with Bud Hopkins? So it, his friend persuaded him, and um, eventually they, they persuaded Calvin to undergo regressive hypnosis, which he did. 
And that lasted for about um, 90 minutes. And, of course, Bud had since passed away. So I said to Calvin, was it recorded? He said, yeah. So I asked who had um, taken uh, care of, of Bud's uh, archive of material, and it, it had been handed to Dr. David Jacobs. I emailed Dr. Jacobs, and I said, do you have the tape in question? And lo and behold, he had it. He knew where to find it as well. And within 10 days of asking him, I had a copy on my desk. Oh, that's good that he, he was amenable to letting you hear it. Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I asked permission. He'd only release it to me if Calvin said it was okay, which he did. Uh, and I transcribed it. Uh, and it, it's it's fascinating. It really is. It, it, there were, it was a bit difficult at the time because Bud was a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. So, so I've got a New Yorker asking the questions, <laughs> and then I've got Calvin from Mississippi giving the answers, oh. uh, and and of course there were some of the slang words that I have never heard before. They're not offensive; they're just slang words. Right. Uh, Calvin talked about the car having a tag on it. I had no idea what a tag was. Well, it's the thing on the number plate which tells you which, which where you're from, you know. Right. Uh, right. From which state you're from. And Maybe I can help you with that if you still need a little bit of a deciphering of. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was interesting though, uh, under, you know, when he was fully conscious, Calvin will tell you the story. If they drove in, they passed a car on the way. He can even tell you what make and model the car was. However, under hypnosis, he even gave us the number plate, uh-huh. what, the, what the number was. And he, he recalled that this man got out of the car and had a look around and got back in and drove away. Um, so, you know, that's in the book. I mean, even Calvin had never heard that tape. He asked, uh, apparently Bud uh, put a, a hypnotic suggestion in there whereby Calvin couldn't remember it. So he, oh. he was oblivious to it himself. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because this is a question I was going to ask you that he apparently had no recollection of what took place during the hypnosis session with Hopkins. But in addition, Philip, isn't it true that he talked about an episode of missing time during the regression itself? Oh, absolutely. I mean, talk about that. One of the things that Bud asks is, is anything like this happened before or after, you know, and one other thing, there's, well, there's a number of things, but one of the things that Calvin talked about was um, he went fishing one day. I mean, he's fishing mad, mm-hmm. but he got a, he's got a little boat. Um, and this day he was only going fishing literally for a couple of hours. And he knows it was for a couple of hours by the provisions he'd take with him. He wouldn't take any food. He'd just take some water to drink. He says, if I was going out fishing longer, I would take, you know, a packed lunch and so on. His wife knew where he was going, so we drove there, got in the boat, off he goes. It's a lovely day. <laughs> and he's lay there looking up, and there's a cloud, and the cloud opens. Hmm. And then the next thing he remembers, it's dark. So he goes back to shore. There's his car, and his wife had actually been out to find out what had happened to him, because it was late, and she left a note under his, his, his windscreen wipers, saying, Calvin, where are you? You know? So that came out under hypnosis as well, and and other things. I mean, one of the things, but I said, you know, keep this. One of the the creatures that Calvin describes again. It's not described by Charlie Hickson. It's just described by Calvin, and I told you about these strange creatures, the 
you know, with the pincer-like hands. But there was an... Calvin talks about this other creature coming in, Mm -hmm. and he thinks it was a female. Why he thinks it was a female, it was nothing visually, although she did look, I'm saying she, it looked different. It was just, you know, an impression that he got that this was a female, and... uh, there was aggression between the two. I mean, Calvin says under hypnosis, he just wanted to kill her, you know, in no uncertain terms. And he gets really angry. And um, hmm. I mean, none of this was remembered consciously at all. He can, he can now, because, you know, he's heard the tape, he's read the transcript, and it's all come flooding back to him. And he, he just calls the other creatures the, the, the ugly ones, <laughs> you know. And there were three, weren't there, if I there recall? There were three, yeah. Okay, two, yeah. Got, two got hold of Charlie Hickson and one got hold of Calvin. And, um, you know, he huh. just called, I mean, they were all ugly, you know. So he, 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 he calls the others the ugly ones. But there was this uh, aggressive interaction between Calvin and this, this female creature. For want, I call it a creature of a different gender, okay. and um, and it goes back in time as well to when he was a young boy, uh, still living at home, and he shared a room with his brother. I mean, Calvin idolised his brother as well, and he said his brother would get upset at night when the in inverted commas the ghosts would come, and of course Calvin is saying it well it wasn't really the ghost. Yeah. It was one of these things. And his brother used to say, the ghost is whispering in my ear, Calvin. Get it get it to stop. Interesting. You know? Yeah. So there's all this mixed in with it as well and, and yeah, yeah. a lot more. I want to talk about that. This is perfect. Thank you. You're, you're so uh, lucid in the way you're articulating the story so, so brilliantly. Uh, let's talk, Philip, a little bit about the intergenerational link, because I know that Calvin mentioned that not only his brother, but his mother, if I'm not mistaken, had craft sightings. Yep. Now, I've, I've talked about this this whole idea of an intergener- intergenerational link with Mary Rodwell uh, in great detail throughout several of our interviews. Um, others, like Carla Turner, the late uh, researcher who suspected that her abductions were tied to family members as well as Calvin. Now, I don't know that he went into whether both his mother and brother uh, were unequivocally uh, contactees, but it would seem to me, or it's certainly wor- worth the question, had they had craft sightings, is there any reason to s- suspect that they may have been abductees or experiencers as well? Let's talk about that. Calvin's story, the intergenerational link, if there is such a thing. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it is interesting because, again, when we look at Charlie Hickson, Charlie Hickson uh, claimed to have a number of uh, contacts on his own after the initial event, but then um, there was uh, an incident where the whole family were involved. Literally, the whole lot of them. Yeah. They'd been to a, uh, I think it was Mother's Day. I think they'd been out to see his mom, and they were driving back. And Charlie became what we probably call a contactee, mm-hmm. and he wanted to get out of the car because this thing was coming into land. And he wanted to go with them. He said, this is the time. Uh, this is the time, for, for whatever reason, for me to go with them. But his family stopped him, and he claimed he had a, um, a you know, message saying there'll be another time, you know. Um, so, again, like, like I said, when I was reading the, the original book, I'm thinking, I wonder if anything like this happened to Calvin. Mm. 
you know. Uh, and of course, I got the chance to ask him and he told me about family sightings. Then when we had the tape, we had things going back in time to when he was a young boy. And, you know, there's no I don't think there's any definitive answer on this. I mean, a number of researchers uh, believe or claim that the evidence that they've uncovered does tend to suggest that whatever these encounters are, they're not just a one off. Right. That they happen from when you're young. Absolutely. Right the way through your adult life and so on. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, with your offspring or other family members as well. Um, but then there are those that claim, well, there are instances where it is just a one-off. Yeah. And what we, we find no evidence of anything before or after. So it's it's still an area of research, I think, that is still ongoing. That could be explored, uh, yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, because I think I think in, in in the early days, you know, someone would come forward with, with an account and we'd listen to it and we'd document it and we would never ask the question, has anything happened to you like this previously? We'd just probably take on board what, what had happened to them at that point. And I think it's only... Other researchers then got hints that perhaps there was something else, like Bud Hopkins, like Dr. David Jacobs and Carla Turner and, and others, um, that were thinking, hang, hang on a minute, hang on, hold on. You know, they may have had one case that, was, that did have these links, so they then thought, well, I'd better ask others. I'm not going to lead them. I'm not going to ask a leading question. I'm just going to see if there's anything else. And when you, when you listen to the Bud Hopkins tape, you know, you can see he's, he's, he's trying his damnedest not to offer leading questions. Right, right. And, and let Calvin just tell his story. And um, so it, it's still a, a, an area of research that I think is, is still ongoing and, and one that will will play out at some point or another, I think. Yeah, I hope so. I think that's an integral puzzle piece because, I mean, again, going back to if what is happening, you and I were speaking offline about this idea that this could perhaps be more of a mass phenomenon that we know. Um, what are the what are the global implications for that? Uh, you know, once we discover that this is far more ubiquitous than we know, including an intergenerational component, including what Grant Cameron refers to as lifers, his uh, very, very adamant belief is that if you have had one contact experience, you are a quote lifer. I actually just posed that question to Rich Dolan, another colleague of ours who was on the show a few weeks ago, um, as to whether he believes there's any teeth to that. And again, I, I think that there's a spectrum where you may have a significant amount of individuals who have had multiple um, contact experiences. You may have others uh, that have what we call one-offs. Well, like, well, I'll give, you, I'll yeah. give you an example, Alexis. Mm. Um, Calvin's just been interviewed for a, a documentary, but it's not about him. The, the producer approached him uh, because he's dealing with a, a, a lady in Mississippi who's had these strange blue lights in her house hmm. uh, and they've terrified her and she won't live there. Now, at the beginning of, 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 of Calvin's encounter, the first thing they saw were blue lights because they'd gone, they had gone. shouldn't really have been fishing. There was a no entry sign. They shouldn't have been there. So Calvin naturally thought, this is the police. Of course, when they turned around, it wasn't the police. So he took the opportunity to, to interview Calvin 
uh, he went to Calvin's house and spent a, f- a few hours there. And he, but one of the questions he asked Calvin, is there anything this lady can do? Because it scared the living daylights out of her. And Calvin says, no, <laughs> I think, I think he was looking for some reassuring words from Calvin to say, yeah, if you do this or if you don't, you know, that that'll be the end of it. But he said, no, basically there's nothing you can nothing. do. That's very, you know, he, he used, uh, how can I, how can I say this? Uh, a language that was a bit stronger than that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we can use our imagination. Yeah. yeah. But hearing that has got to be, my gosh, yeah, so disheartening. What do you mean there's nothing I can do? And yet I... Yeah, and he was imagine. just being honest. Mm. And you know? this was a recent situation of this individual, this woman seeing the blue lights in her home? Oh, abs- absolutely, yes, okay. absolutely. And, and she has moved out of the house, apparently. And, um, I, you know, I think the, the gentleman was just... Thought, well, Calvin's in the region. He saw blue lights as well. Mm-hmm. He's now come out of the woodwork, so to speak. So I'll I'll take the advantage of trying to speak to him, if I can. And and you know, Calvin agreed, and uh, he looked for some reassuring words. And Calvin said, "No, there's nothing you can do." Yeah. You know, well, that's, that's it from his perspective. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you, Philip. Do you think there's any specific criteria that these beings look for when choosing who they're going to quote abduct? Well, that's been, that's been a question that's been asked down the decades. I know. Alexis. I mean, again, you, you know, got four I, decades in, so you've got to give me something here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I had, I had a, a colleague of mine, again, sadly no longer with us, called Ken Phillips. Mm-hmm. And um, he worked with a, um, a psychologist called, Do- I think it was Dr. Alexander Kewell, Coyle. I can't pronounce it, but he, he was a, a European guy. And they didn't look about what you would say about your encounter they looked at you mm-hmm. you as an individual and i had a whole battery of questions about people who had close encounters to see if there was something why you what would make you have such an experience whether these experiences were external or internal or whatever but they weren't really interested in the theories about what these encounters may or may not be. They were looking to see if there was anything as you as an individual. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was a study that was ongoing that didn't really come to any conclusions. I mean, my first book uh, that I wrote was called Without Consent. I wrote it with a colleague of mine called Carl Nagatis. Carl was a long-standing um, Fleet Street journalist uh, of some repute at the time. And one of the things we tried to do when we were interviewed, I mean, you know, I drove up and down the country interviewing people face to face, was to see if there was anything that would connect these individuals. And we, we couldn't find anything. It, it seemed that they were just random. Mm-hmm. As far as we could see, they were about their daily tasks, about just going about life in general, you know, driving home from work. One lady was in the, the fields picking wildflowers with her daughter. Uh, you know, uh, another chap was on his way to meet his girlfriend. You know, n- nothing that we could find. There was a complete age difference. H- however, there were some omissions as far as the UK is concerned. Um, and there are, we have areas in, in the UK where they have uh, large populations of people from Asia. Uh, from Pakistan, India, parts of the Commonwealth. 
I don't ever recollect speaking to an Asian person who'd had one of these encounters. Mm. I may be wrong now. I don't know. Um, there was other omissions. I don't ever remember speaking, and I know this is very rare in the population, um, but speaking to someone who was deaf or blind oh. who'd had such an encounter. Uh, you know, again, I don't know. It may be just because you know, that is still, thankfully, such a rarity within the population. Mm -hmm. um, but there were certainly things that we thought that should be there that weren't. For example, you know, the second largest city in the UK is Birmingham. Uh, has That's where my, that's how I become to be because my mum and dad met in Birmingham after the war. So <laughs> I have a connection with the city. And it has, again, a large uh, uh, black population. Mm -hmm. But we didn't have many people from, from that area report this type of thing, if any. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. Uh, we couldn't find anything, but there seemed to be things that we thought we should find that weren't there. This is coming up a lot. I'm smiling, obviously. Uh, well, I shouldn't say obviously. I am smiling because it has come up in uh, it questioned me as an African-American woman, uh, not just insofar as the contact experience, how uh, common or uncommon it may be in certain cultures, but basically what we're talking about here, are they choosing certain, are they choosing certain profiles? Um, you, you know, you bring up something amazing, you know, and I think what you're doing is through process of elimination, you may be putting together a profile of who's more apt to be uh, an abductee than not uh, in terms of being uh, deaf individuals, individuals uh, with loss of sight, etc. And yet I would dare say those are in there as well. This is a big subject that we're talking about now, particularly uh, having to do with cultures that are having contact experiences. I, mean, I, have, I have friends who are, you know, of Asian descent, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Zafran and Idris are good friends of mine, you know, and I, they know of my interest in this subject. Um, and they're, they're both of the, of the Muslim faith. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, the, the, again, not too far from where I live. We have big Asian communities. I've been there, worked there. And you would expect to, to have a sprinkling of people of, of, of Asian origin mm -hmm. in amongst the abductees. But right. I, I'm not saying there aren't any. It's just that I never came across any. Right. Things may have changed since then. I don't know. Because we do know, for example, that within certain uh, Asian communities, they are reluctant to talk about things anyway. I was just going to say there there may, in fact, be an inhibition that yeah. I think that definitely plays a role. I think there are a number of factors, you know, the people that are talking about abduction experiences versus those that are having them and yeah. those that can recall them. And that's a big one, as, as, as you and I spoke about offline. So very, very... Um, very interesting indeed, and, and is worthy of many more years oh, of research. What was also interesting, Alexis, although mm -hmm. we didn't publish this, when, when Carl and I had finished uh, the book without consent, there was a small number of, of, of those that actually featured in the book, and I just sent them all the same questionnaire. And it was only you know a few lines. Uh, didn't have to put their names on them. Their name didn't matter. But it was, what did they believe was the nature and origin of their experience? And it was amazing. You know, some thought it was definitely from E.T. Others thought this was a spiritual experience. Mm. Others had no idea. One young man 
he thought it was the Russians. He didn't. He was just, he was, you know, he blamed the Russians because when this happened to him, the Russians were the bad guys. So we'll blame it on them. It was just a way of rationalizing it for him. But even the people who had had these experiences themselves didn't, you know, all agree on what the nature and origin of was. Right. And, and I, found, I found that interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I would imagine there, there has to be a broad range of uh, interpretation. And yeah. really, we're, we're left with nothing but interpretation. Will we ever see the experience but for he, what it is? There's a little thing we did find out, and it's not definitive, Alexis, but it seemed as a residue uh, or something, um, a side effect, you might want to call it, is that a number of these people um, had a, how can I say it, an, an, an artistic or spiritual awakening after the event. Um, for example, they would become interested in environmental issues mm-hmm. or they would develop um, an interest in some kind of art or <clears throat> have skills, artistic skills that they didn't had before. The one young man who who I told you about who thought he was the Russians, he was a typical young guy. He reminded of me when I was his age. He had long hair, wore the denims, you know, liked his rock music. And he, he, he started writing spontaneous poetry, hmm. uh, you know. And he... You know, I had to swear an oath at the time not to tell any of his friends that he was writing poetry. <laughs> All of these things they were they claimed were linked back to their experience that they, these didn't happen before it. Right. That's so that was just just a, an interesting little thing that cropped up. Now, whether that's the same for everyone, I would doubt it. I would doubt it, it. Yeah. It was just an interesting little side effect, I yeah. think. Yeah. It's come up in a number of other uh, uh, works including, I'm thinking of Miguel Mendoza, a, a, a newer uh, individual researcher in this field who's written several books, including Meet the Hybrids, uh, in which he interviewed eight individuals who he believes to be, or they who they believe to be themselves part human, part uh, non-human. And what's prominent in all of their cases of discovering that they were not only having contact experience, but may in fact be hybrids, are their artistic abilities that come out in myriad forms. So yeah, for sure. I'm looking at this clock and I want to, I want to make sure we get to another one of your brilliant works and I'm determined to fit that in. But I want to ask one more question about on, on the Calvin story, which is absolutely fascinating. We're, we're going to have to try to get him on at some point if he's agreeable to do so. I want to talk a little bit about Calvin's philosophy about what's going on right now, because I think that's very interesting. And this may have something to do with why he was uh, quite adamant about getting his story out at this time. It, it, this relates to his individual experience with mass consciousness. He said that he has a feeling that we're going to have to face some realizations about these non-humans sooner than later, and that they may be living side by side with us right now. Philip, do you agree with his assessment? What are your thoughts? Well, you know, it's 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 not easy to disagree. I mean, these this is the man who has faced the phenomenon, you know, face to face, up close and personal, as we tried to do many years previously, but but, but sadly failed. And you know, I think if you ask Calvin openly, he'll call these creatures aliens. Hmm. But he says uh, at the end of the day, I don't really know what they were. I know what they weren't, you know, hmm. and. I think he's, he's he has speculated and 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 wondered 
what the nature and origin of his experience was and, and his thoughts on that may have changed down the years but now he's a much older much wiser person and uh he's a, he's a He's at peace with it now. I think that's the the, the way I can describe it. Mm, it it's almost thing. like you know this thing was following him, and and by publishing his book, telling his story, that that's gone. You know, he he, he no longer has to look over his shoulder. Hmm. Very cathartic. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. That's great. And he's actually grateful for it. You know and. It's changed his, his 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 viewpoint. It's changed his life. It gives him time to to look back on what what has happened, and you know it, he's not a great scholar of the UFO subject by any soak of the imagination. Um, I, I don't think he'd be able to tell you, you know, many books. <laughs> he's met a few personalities down the, down the years, but he's not a, not you know he's not that interested in. The subject in general right which is interesting in and of itself yeah yeah and uh, he, he is of the opinion that you know the day will come when it will no longer be you and i chatting about it it will be accepted by everyone i don't know what i know there's there's literally nothing that everyone accepts but it will no longer be an underground you know genre yeah. so to speak it will be an accepted phenomenon whatever yeah. that may be and yeah. and whether it be in his lifetime or not he, he doesn't know but uh it's, it's sure the day is coming i agree with him actually and i frankly i think that i can't s certainly speak for everyone in this field but i'm sure many of us that do the work that we do are doing it based on that as uh an objective so i i certainly hope that's the case and i have a feeling we're getting closer we just don't know when. So your work has certainly been integral in that regard. And uh, it's just, again, I want to just take my hats off to you because you've just done stellar, stellar work. This has just been so enjoyable uh, talking with you. And I know our audience will enjoy it. And speaking of your work, Philip Mantle, let's talk about your work. Obviously, with Calvin, putting out his story has garnered plenty of attention in the last several months more. Uh, you've got a whole catalog in addition of equally intriguing works uh, some of uh, some of these books you've authored yourself and some written by others. But I want to talk about your book for our closing minutes, uh, Once Upon a Missing Time. And this was released at the beginning of this year, I believe, in March. Is that true? Yeah, well, I, okay. it's a re-release. Re I mean, it's a novel. It's a re-release. Okay. Talk about it's that a, a little bit. This is, this a is intriguing. Yeah, it's a novel of, yeah. of, of on alien abductions. Um, all the characters in it are actually real people although I have changed their names and their occupations. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, my, my first book was called Without Consent, which deals entirely with uh, missing time and abduction accounts from the UK only. Nowhere else, just the UK. Mm -hmm. I think it's still the only book that's, that's ever done that. Now, when I, when I wrote Without Consent, I still I literally have all the files next to me for that particular wow. book, paper files. So they were all still there. And I, I had all these stories in my head. So I wrote um, the novel, Once Upon a Missing Time, which is actually based on without consent. So there are pieces of individual um, missing time or abduction cases taken from the nonfiction book and turned into a work of fiction. And like I said, all the people in it are real people, 
um, whom I know, you know, they're not just characters I've made up. And, and I set it in the Yorkshire Dales, where I, I mentioned earlier, yes. again, there was a time when we had a lot of sightings there. So it just made sense to me to do that. And um, it is about uh, a family, uh, you know, uh, the, the Morrisons, mum and dad, and a, you know, a, t- a daughter at school. Uh, and the, and, and the, 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 the fictional story is as much about the, them as what happened to them. And how they deal with it and how, you know, people around them deal with it. For example, you know, one of the things was you've had this experience. Who do you talk to about it? Mm -hmm. You know, and they talk to their family about it and get, you know, the (laughs) family's not that interested, really. And how it affects their daughter at school and so on. And um, so it's it's it's. For me, I tried to paint the phenomena in, in the correct positive light and, and also how some people um, struggle to cope with it. Yeah. And, and again, you know, there is no Ghostbusters. You can't call Ghostbusters because this thing has happened. Right. You know, That's for and, sure. um, yeah, what help can you get? Who do you turn to? And of course, in the end, they turn to a, a UFO researcher. Some people believe that the character of the UFO researcher is me. It's not. It's not based on me, but um, who in turn tries to bring in outside help from a psychologist and so on. So there's, you know, you get academia involved in it, uh, who, who are quite sceptical. Um, so it tells a very positive story at the end, and they do manage to cope. But then, like all good novels, they leave it in a cliffhanger. Oh, that yeah. something else, as we talked about, these things continuing and not being a one-off. So I'll leave it with the the fact that something else is just about to happen and, and, and leave it there. Uh, and as, as we mentioned uh, off-air, I, I, um, I sold the film rights to it earlier this year. Whether it'll ever get made into a movie or not is a different matter, but it, it was nice that somebody thought it was worthy of that uh, in the first place. I, I think it probably, I have a feeling it probably will. This just in your, your synopsis of it sounds completely intriguing. Well, it's, so. it's, it's what we try to do with without consent, because we try to show that these people who have these experiences are not round the twist. They are just ordinary, everyday people. It could be your next door neighbor. Yeah. It could be your brother or your sister, you know, and they were just about their normal everyday tasks, going to meet friends, going out for work at leisure, whatever, when these things happened, uh, completely out of the blue, without any warning, uh, and and so on. So we, we did that without consent, although in without consent, we looked at, a, you know, what we mixed in a few other possible theories. You know, we didn't follow any, but we tried to show it that, you know, because the, the, in those days, the, um, the media would have you believe that these individuals are looking for attention, uh, these things always happen in an out-of-the-way place and there's nobody else around, which is difficult to do in Britain because, as you know, Alexis, we're only a tiny little place. Right, you, right. you know, uh, but of course, none of that was true. Um, I mean, one of those in, in, in the book is was, was a police constable in his patrol car at the time on duty, and that was PC Alan Godfrey. Uh, here's a little, side, a little side story for you. You, you, hmm. you know the film about Travis Walton, Fire in of the course, Sky? Of course, yes. Well, the producers had two movies 
You're looking at two, one of two. And the other option was Police Constable Alan Godfrey. They actually came and met um, Alan and even made a little promo of the movie. Uh, but they chose Travis Walton instead. So, and of course, PC Alan Godfrey just published his own book, actually. He's in my book, Without Consent. And he was on duty at the time hmm. uh, in the patrol car. So that's just a little story. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. How things are so tightly inter intertwined. Fascinating. You have been fascinating from beginning to end, and I'm looking at the clock. We're going to have to cut it off. But speaking of cliffhangers, let's make this one, because I'd like to do a, a show perhaps just on this idea of missing time, because it seems to be so integral to the contact phenomenon. Certainly not you know, all of the time, but enough that it's worthy for discussion. So would you come back and talk to us about that in your great book more? Oh, absolutely, Alexis. I'd be delighted. That would be phenomenal. This has been a treat, and I mean that. Uh, although we had originally planned to meet when I was over in the UK a couple of months ago, uh, and I was sad that I couldn't meet you. I'm just delighted that we finally had a chance to get together, So, and I'm sure it will not be the last time. So before we close, tell us where people can find your incredible catalog of work and uh, also your Facebook page. I think you've got, by the way, you've got a really cool Facebook banner at the top. I just went over to the Facebook page. Everyone, you got to go over there and see it. <laughs> Almost a little trailer in and of itself as the banner. But tell us where we can find your work on your main website. Yeah, it's just if you just put Flying Disc Press into Google, you'll find me. I think I'm the only one. So Flying Disc you'll, Press. You'll, yeah. Okay. I've got a little blog and all the books are on there. Oh, you've got a, a ton of stuff. It's a treat. Go there, everyone. We'll make sure to have a link uh, that you can go right there. And as I said, go to that Facebook page and check out what he did with his <laughs> I'm calling it the, the Facebook trailer. It's phenomenal. <laughs> Well, listen, Philip Mantle, what an honor and a pleasure to have you on. And um, you keep up the keep up the fight because I have a feeling you will continue to be integral in turning this into um, something that's fringe and subculture to something that's mainstream. I think we're getting there. Thanks in part to you. So thanks again. My pleasure, Alexis.